This classic Encounters podcast is brought to you by Encounters North. To learn more about our podcast videos and projects and to support our work, please visit EncountersNorth.org. Hi, I'm Richard Nelson for Encounters, a program of observations, experiences, and reflections on the world around us. For many thousands of years, this sound has drifted through the forests and over the muskegs and meadows of the southeast coast of Alaska. The sound of a deer call. It's a very simple little thing made out of two strips of wood with a little space between and a rubber band stretched between that little space. It's the same thing that you probably did when you were a kid holding a blade of grass between your thumbs and blowing on that. And it's a similar sound until fairly recently that sound was made more like the way we did when we were kids with a blade of grass or especially Tlingit people here had learned to make that sound by using the leaf of a dwarf dogwood uh, or what's often called Jacob berry in this part of the world, holding that against the roof of your mouth and blowing on it to create a similar sound. It is a magical, magical morning on this island off the coast of southeast Alaska. I'm standing in a long, narrow muskeg or bog and every twig, every branch, every needle, every trunk is covered with billows of snow, snow clinging everywhere. The ground of the muskeg itself also billowing with snow. It's as if you could walk through the clouds. If you've been on a jet plane flying through towering cumulus clouds, you've had the same kind of feeling of moving through this world of white, and in this case, white and black, white and black. A beautiful mazework and mosaic of snow. The snow in this muskeg is about, oh, in some places up to my knee, a foot to 18 inches deep. That makes it about belly deep for a deer, and I've just come out from the edge, and right here, cutting a line right straight across the muskeg is a deer track. In fact, two deer tracks. One a fairly smallish track and the other quite large. And what that tells you is almost certainly a buck was following a doe. It's the rutting season. It's December, actually the second phase of the rut. The initial rut in this part of the world starts around the middle of November. And does who do not mate and become pregnant during that first estrus cycle will come into another one about a month later. And that's what time of year it is now. So there are bucks following does around on this island. What I'm doing, hunting for deer, reflects one of the most deeply rooted and elemental of all human activities. It goes back at least three million years, possibly four million years. It's may well be the key to the evolution of our species. Hunting requires 
intelligence, at least the human form of hunting does. The ability to think, to strategize, to understand what the animal you hunt is going to do, where that animal is, is found, how it's likely to react to various circumstances. Hunting also emphasizes cooperation, people working together. The use of language may well have evolved in response to the challenges of hunting, the ability to communicate back and forth, and perhaps most importantly, in terms of human evolution, the use of tools, a tool held in this marvelous, flexible, adaptable human hand, the hand of the hunter. So when you look at yourself in the mirror, you are looking at the body and the face and thinking with the mind of a hunter. I'm not hunting alone today. I have my dog, Kida, a little border collie who's wallowing through the snow next to me here, not too happy to be out here in this muskeg. It's hard for her to get through this. Little border collie, black and white. I've hunted with her for many, many years, 16 years now, I think, taking advantage of her companionship as well as her acute hearing, her remarkable eyesight, and above all else, her sense of smell. A few minutes ago, as we started to approach this muskeg, Kita was lifting her snout and getting excited and shivering a little bit, and I knew we had walked into the cloud of scent from a deer. There are many ways to hunt deer, and in the lower 48 states, oftentimes people hunt in stands. It's not done very often here in southeastern Alaska, where a hunter will say, there's a nice tree right over here next to me, a big spruce tree with a bear patch of ground underneath it. The hunter may sit under there for hours just waiting for a deer to come by, perhaps near a deer trail, maybe in white-tailed deer country, near a place where buck is rubbing its antlers. They often return to those places, white-tails do, or a stand up in a tree on, on a branch or a little homemade or manufactured kind of a stand where the hunters will sit up in a tree. Another way to hunt deer is by driving, done in many parts of the country, especially in the Midwest, where a line of People will move very, very slowly through the forest or through marshes or meadows and try to push deer toward other hunters who are on stands waiting. But here in southeastern Alaska, almost everybody hunts by what's called still hunting, a paradoxical term. And, oh, here's another set of deer tracks, a little older with a lot of snow in them. The last ones were very fresh. These have some new snow in them, so it shows that they're from earlier this morning or maybe from yesterday. And here's another one, another track where a deer kind of plowed through deep snow here. You can see how its chest and belly were dragging through the snow. Still hunting, the way that we do it in this part of the world, it's kind of a paradoxical term because you're actually moving. You're not standing perfectly still. But the, the term, I think, is to remind you that it's very important to walk slowly and then to stop to walk along and then stop, just as I've been doing, as I've been talking with you. So that you're watching where your feet come down, watching for every twig, every branch that might make a noise. Then you stop and you look around and then you watch your feet again. Still hunting. Some people do it fairly fast, actually. They walk along and it works fairly well because a deer will hear a noise coming, stop and wait to see what is that noise. My own preference is to hunt very, very slowly, just because I see more as, for example, I'm right 
kind of following the edge of the muskegon right over here is one set of deer tracks here's another set of deer tracks and just beyond it a whole scramble of tracks from a little hyperactive animal that doesn't seem to be able to decide where it wants to go these are the tracks of a martin in fairly shallow snow here by the edge of a tree i can see that there are a little bigger half again the size of 50 cent piece these little footprints and i can see a couple of them, I can see the five toes that are emblematic of the weasel family, the Mustelidae, mink, martin, weasel, ermine, uh, otter, sea otter, skunk, fisher, all belong to that same family. So this little martin I'm following, its tracks is just going all over the place like, like the frenetic little creature it is, sniffing around looking for food, martin will eat. Well, sometimes of the year they'll eat a lot of berries and stuff like that, but they're really a predator. They'll eat birds and bird eggs, and especially they are noted as a hunter of red squirrels, which are also common on this island. Still hunting really, really requires the ability to be quiet if you do it in the slow way that I prefer. So you watch every single branch that you don't brush against it, you don't make noise, you wear very quiet clothing. You'd never wear something like nylon, very noisy stuff. Something to remember if you just like to watch animals too is to avoid nylon, but polypropylene fleece is wonderful and wool is very good too for walking around in this quietly in this kind of country. You learn little tricks about quiet, for example, how to step quietly in the squishy mossy muskeg if you feel your foot sink down in a very wet spot. You know when you pull it up, it's going to make a loud sucking sound. You learn to kind of twist your foot and pull it out very slowly so you don't make noise. The snow this morning is a little bit noisy. You can hear it when I just be quiet so you can hear my footsteps. So even that can be a problem, although in a lot of places today the snow is very, very deep powder, soft powder. Now here's an interesting thing. Here are two cedar trees and both of them have had the bark torn off. Great strips of bark torn from the base of the tree about as wide as my outstretched palm up in this one tree. Gee whiz, the, the strip goes up about 30 feet. This is where a bear came along and pulled off the bark in the springtime to lick that tasty cedar sap from the trunk of the tree. So as you move along, one of the thing, one of the virtues of this still hunting is that you see so much. These the little tracks, the here all around me right now. I'm I've I've kind of slipped back into the forest here and looking all around, all the blueberry bushes, all the huckleberry bushes have been clipped, trimmed, not this winter, but in previous winters by browsing deer. And so you can see that this is a favored habitat for deer, and it is a perfect one. Now here, I've got a lot of big trees around me and there's almost no snow. Remember, I was saying the snow is so deep in the muskeg. Now I've gone back just to, oh, 50 feet or so into the forest, and the snow is about an inch deep here. So this is the kind of place deer really need for winter habitat. There's lots of feet around, but there are also lots of big trees for shelter from the snow, so this, the feed is accessible to them. The mix, the diversity of habitats here in a forest like this, an old, ancient, temperate rainforest is perfect for deer because you've got that mix of open spaces where trees have fallen, millions of tiny little open spaces, the Swiss cheese effect, and then you've got the shelter of the bigger trees 
where deer don't have to wallow in the snow. I'm not an expert at hunting, not by any means. I'm a learner. And I began learning when I was 23 years old, the first time I had ever hunted, although I grew up in Wisconsin in hunting country. At the age of 23, as an aspiring cultural anthropologist, I got to spend one of the most important years of my life with the Inupiaq Eskimo people in the village of Wainwright up on the North Slope. Inuit people, Eskimo people, are quintessential hunters. Of all the traditional people of the world, they have the highest percentage of meat as the foundation of their diet. And they may well be the world's most brilliant hunters, living in that incredibly challenging environment, probably the most challenging environment any human group has ever inhabited. What's the key to it? Knowledge. The sharpest edge of the hunter's harpoon is what that person knows, all the meticulous, intricate details of that Arctic world. When I lived with Inupiaq people, they insisted that I learn not by questioning endlessly, as I started out doing when I first, <laughs> when I first lived there, but by watching and then by trying for myself, learning by doing, learning by my innumerable and endlessly entertaining mistakes. Hunting caribou, especially seal out on the Arctic ice, walrus in the summer, polar bear in the wintertime, and the largest animal any group of humans has ever hunted, the bowhead whale in the spring and April and May. I had similar apprenticeships then with Gwich'in and Koyukon Indians in the interior. Spent a number of years living in interior Alaskan villages, hunting moose, caribou, black bear, waterfowl, as well as fishing and traveling around with trappers. So I had some years of experience before I came here to southeast Alaska and decided that I wanted to follow that subsistence life way that I had seen up north, and that meant I had to learn how to hunt for deer. And in spite of all the experience I'd had in the north, I found myself absolutely ignorant about deer hunting and an incredible, really quite spectacular failure at it. The first season that I hunted was in I was living in Juneau, and I spent the entire season, I don't know how many days, over weeks and over months, I was out all day long tromping around in the, in the forest and in the muskegs, and I did not see one single deer. I didn't, know, I didn't know how to look. I'm sure a lot of deer saw me. <laughs> but I discovered quite quickly that there's a lot to know if you want to become a uh, decent deer hunter. In fairness, I was near the town of Juneau and the deer were a little skittish there, but nevertheless, I had some special talent for not seeing anything. I began to learn about deer hunting by watching deer, by standing with them and watching them for long periods of time, not hunting for them at all, just watching to see what they do. And in that way, beginning to discover in the first place how you see deer, and then how to read their behavior, how to know what, say, the tracks mean in the snow. Like right now, I'm going, I've come back out into an open spot. Everything is covered with deep snow on top of every little tiny tree and every stump all covered with snow. It reminds me of a Koyukon riddle that goes like this, wait, I see something. We sit across from each other wearing hats of mountain sheep skin. And the answer is two stumps with, uh, with these caps of snow on top of them. And you learn to read a little bit about deer sign. For example, you come, here's some very fresh, here's some really fresh tracks. You know, if you can 
hear me sort of crunching through some, sloshing through some wet stuff, and there's some tracks there that are where a deer has stepped into that wet stuff also. Finding droppings, if you're really lucky, if you see really fresh, shiny, soft droppings, you can poke your finger down in there and see if they're still warm. It only takes deer scat about, oh, maybe five minutes to cool off. So if you ever come across warm scat, and I've only done that a couple times in 20 years of pretty serious hunting, you know there's a deer very, very close to you. But when it's snowing like it is right now, just a little snow starting to fall, if you find a track and it's got no snow in it, you can be sure that deer passed by a very short time ago. Here's another set of tracks. As you can hear, I'm sort of puffing and huffing because I'm walking through some very rough ground. Oh, wow, now here's something interesting. Here's a, I, here's a set of fresh deer tracks, fairly small, a doe or maybe a fawn. And these tracks are in my own footprints from when I walked into the muskeg. I'm following my own tracks back now. So there's a deer that came along my trail after I walked through here, which was not more than about 15 minutes ago. So I know that I'm surrounded by quite a few deer in here. My chances of seeing any are essentially zero right now, as long as I'm talking. Uh, the human voice is, is, a, is a sure cue to a deer that it's time to be somewhere else. Another thing you have to be acutely aware of as you hunt is that your boundaries, the boundaries of your own body, are not where you think they are. You may walk along and think, well, I don't want some other animal to see me. And you think of your boundaries only as the physical ones that are available to the eyesight of the animal you're looking for. But in fact, you're carrying with you a circle of sound and a circle of scent. Every step I make right now travels and drifts off through this forest and alerts animals to my presence that are far outside the range of sight, especially if it's, there's a breeze blowing a certain direction, then my sound will carry much more quickly in that direction than in the other direction. And of course, the most important thing is the circle of scent. Well, it's not just a circle. In fact, it's uh, sometimes if it's very calm as it is right now in this forest, maybe my scent just blooms out in a circle around me, but usually, it carries off with the breeze. If I stand very still, as I'm doing right now, and I turn around, ah, I can feel a little breeze against my cheek, right now drifting out of the northwest. So I know that off toward the southeast, drifting through this forest, is a ribbon of scent. And an animal far out of sight, 100 yards away in the forest, knows I'm here. So you have to learn to think that way. Kita, my little dog here, trudging along next to me, has taught me a lot about scent because I can watch her watch her nose, watch her probing the scents with her nose, and also watching deer and seeing how they discover scent as they walk around downwind. Usually if you're blowing your call, a deer is likely to try to get downwind of you, and you can see that deer searching into the air for your scent. You can use other animal senses too. For example, there's a shorebird, a large shorebird called the yellowlegs, and they make a heck of a racket when they're disturbed during the summer when they're nesting and into the fall, and I have on occasion heard a yellow leg, legs making this incessant call, this alarm call, 
followed that alarm call and seen, gone out into the Muskegon, looked for that yellow legs, and sure enough, there it was. And sure enough, there's a deer wandering close to its nest. And it's making as big a fuss about the deer walking near its nest as it would make a fuss if I was walking near its nest. And the deer's own attention can reveal to you another deer, that doe that comes out of the forest answering my call, turns, looks back behind her, and stares back into the woods. I sit very quietly, and next thing I know, a buck comes out of the forest following her. So deer will also turn your attention to other deer or to other animals. I've seen deer staring. Oops, I just slipped on a, on a log there. I've seen deer watch uh, mink, seen them watch red squirrels, so they can help you to see other stuff too. Koyukon people, Indian people who live up in the interior, watch ravens a lot. For example, if a raven flies overhead, does a topsy-turvy somersault in the air, and then says, that kind of a call, Koyukon people say, it's dropping its pack sack full of meat for you. It's giving you a sign. It says, follow me, follow the way I'm flying, and I'll lead you to the animal you're after. And it may well be true. The raven can see from up there in the air, and the raven may be smart enough to know that you are going to leave something there for, for that bird. Uh, so it's kind of a self-serving prophecy. I follow that a lot when I see ravens do that. I tend to follow where they're going, and I believe there's something to it. For Koyukon people, there's also the prayer to the raven, asking it, for luck. Tzikach, they'll say, drop your pack sack for me. Tzikach, meaning old grandfather, respecting the spiritual power of that bird. Koyukon people respect the spiritual power of everything out in the natural world. And so uh, hunters draw not only from their encyclopedic knowledge and their ingenious array of techniques in hunting, but also their awareness of spiritual power in the world around them by showing respect toward animals, talking respectfully about them, not bragging about them, treating them carefully and respectfully. The hunters believe animals give themselves, reveal themselves to you as an expression of the balance and harmony that exists between humans and the natural world. I've come now to a favorite place of mine where I've often seen deer, a high bank that overlooks a big kind of sprawl of open forest. A good place to blow that call. I'd normally blow it more times than that, and, and uh, I certainly wouldn't stand here talking away after I'd done it. There are lots of other considerations in hunting that I think are extremely important, having to do with something like that spirituality, that idea of balance. I believe that the most important thing that behooves me as a hunter is to behave in an ethical way. If I'm going to take on the responsibility of killing a deer, I want it to be a large one, not a little fawn. And so it's important to learn how to tell a big deer from a little one. And that's, that's fairly easy. The, the head shape of a fawn and an adult deer are quite different. The uh, fawn has a bulging forehead, and the adult deer has a much more streamlined kind of facial shape. There's also, I think, incumbent upon me as an ethical hunter 
the need not to take long shots, to not shoot at running deer. I think it's important to take the closest possible shot that I can get at a deer that's standing perfectly still. There's the old ethic of fair chase, which says the animal should have a fair chance to get away. I don't believe in that at all. I believe that the animal has a right to a humane death, to an instantaneous death. And so I want to be as close as possible to that animal, and I want to take a shot for the temple and to make sure that I can hit there so that there's not even an instant of suffering involved. And there's also, with those kind of shots, no damage and loss of meat either. So I think if you want to be proud as a hunter, the thing to be most proud of is your ability to take a close shot at an animal standing still. Also, I think it's important ethically to take good care of the animal, to make sure it stays clean, to use every single usable part of the animal. The parts that you can't use, I like to take them back out here and put them in the woods. In fact, I did that this morning. I brought some parts of a deer back here and left them in the forest as a gesture of respect toward the animal, rather than just throwing the parts in the garbage or something like that, as if they didn't mean much. Hunting has enormous emotional power. As I walk now along this kind of ravine edge, looking into this beautiful, beautiful forest, I think of the power of being out here, the power of feeling connected to this place, of the importance of taking responsibility for the process of sustaining my own life. It means more than I could possibly express that my body is made in part from deer, the wild animal that I love the most. And the deer that I hunt only on this one island live from the plants that are nurtured by the soil of this place and so that I can live with an awareness that my body is made in part from this island that I love so much. So there's a sense of physical and a kind of spiritual connection that I feel because of hunting here. What a contrast to the supermarket. Here I'm accompanied by bird songs and tumbling water rather than piped-in music. I move among trees and animals rather than crowds of shoppers. I search for elusive hidden animals rather than picking out flashy bright boxes that are shrieking for attention. I'm surrounded by mountains and sky rather than by walls and ceilings. And I feel the crisp, clear wind blowing against my cheeks rather than stuffy, imprisoned indoor air. And I can anticipate the heart-drumming intensity of encountering a deer rather than the impatient drudgery, I guess I'd say, of waiting in a checkout line. Here, I feel closely connected not only to this moment in this place with these animals, but also to my own ancient human ancestors who have been hunters for millions of years. A story comes to mind. I was here with Kida a few years ago, standing very, very quiet back in the muskeg, and I heard a noise like this. Boom, 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 boom. It sounded like the distant drumming of a ruffed grouse, deep sort of non-directional sound. I knelt down beside Kita. She was staring intently at the edge of the forest. I knelt down beside her and realized that sound was her drumming heart. And then looking at the direction that she was gazing, I saw a deer there standing at the edge of the trees. But to hear the dog's drumming heart, I think says something about the intensity for man and animal alike in hunting and also where hunting lives so deep 
in the hunter's heart. Well, if I'm going to seriously hunt today, I think the key to that is I've got to be quiet. I'll stop talking and get on with looking around for deer in this beautiful winter place. For Encounters, I'm Richard Nelson. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next time. of the Island Institute and KCAW in Sitka, Alaska. This program was written and narrated by Richard Nelson, edited by Ken Fate, and produced by Lisa Bush. Theme music by Outback. Encounters is funded by the National Science Foundation, the Alaska Conservation Foundation, the Kenneth Johnson Family Foundation, Jerry Tone, Martha Wyckoff, Sue Cohen, Robert Osborne, the Skaggs Foundation, and the Scott A. Nathan Charitable Trust. To find out more information about Encounters, visit us on the web at EncountersNorth.org.